Hello there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the plant-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. So it's brilliant to be here with you, Chantal. I'm here with Chantal Cabrera, who's been a herbalist um, for for many years and is an educator um, and a horticultural therapist and an author. But also you've spent, uh, you know, a good part of your career, haven't you, focusing on herbal oncology and how you can work with people that have come to your clinic with a cancer diagnosis. So um, I just want to say at the beginning that we're really here uh, to talk about treating the people that come into your clinic, aren't we, with, uh, with cancer. And it's really a, an episode for clinical herbalists, probably, on that basis, because of the, the, the specialist insight. But um, it's great to see you again. It's been some years since we've been in the same room, isn't it? Um, yes, but... thank you, Sebastian. It's lovely to see you as well. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure how many years and here we are miles away, but it feels pretty close. Because <laughs> you're in British Columbia, aren't you? I am. I'm on Vancouver Island. The next stop is Japan. Oh, and um, it sounds like you've got a wonderful place there where you do, um, you know, growing organic food and running workshops and helping mm-hmm. people really connect with nature. uh, Yeah, I think, you know, one of the wonderful things about being a herbalist is that there are so many avenues to it. So, you know, one of the things I do on the side is sort of career coaching for people who think they want to be herbalists. Mm. And I'll say to them, well, what kind of herbalist? You know, people assume you have to be a clinician, but Mm. actually um, herbal medicine really is of the people, for the people, by the people, you know. If mom tells you to eat your broccoli because it's going to make you grow up to be a big, strong boy, you know what? That's actually herbal medicine in a way because there's all the nutrients and the phytochemistry in there that is healthy. And so we're doing herbal medicine. I mean, everyone who's listening to this podcast might have made a cup of tea or a cup of coffee already this morning. And you know what? That's herbal medicine. I've got my coffee in hand. It's going to fuel me for a couple of hours. And so, so, you know, I think people don't appreciate how accessible herbal medicine is at a, at a general public level, never mind the clinicians and the practitioners. Yes, we have a profession and we uphold high standards, but everybody's doing herbal medicine every day. Even if you just are putting black pepper on your dinner, mm-hmm. then you're actually getting medicinal value from that. So I'm really interested in helping people access herbs in different ways. And so here on my farm, I run lots of workshops. Some of them are very technical and sort of high-end advanced. And some of them are really about, let's go pick some plantain and set up an oil and come back in two weeks, we're going to make a beeswax salve. I mean, it's really basic, some of it, because people need that as well. They want their owie salve in their cupboard and they could make it themselves. I'm really interested in empowering people to do a lot for themselves. And actually, in the cancer work, that's true as well. So, yes, as you said, a lot of my work for about the last 20 years has been pretty much focused on holistic oncology. So I was in practice for almost 15 years 
and I didn't really take on cancer patients. I would dabble them f- around the fringes of it a little bit, but I didn't really feel I had a lot to offer or that herbal medicine had a lot to offer. And then after almost 15 years of clinical practice, I had the chance to go back to school. I did the I was in the first cohort at the Scottish School of Herbal Medicine and did the Master of Science degree. And in that, I got the chance to really dig deep into the oncology. It wasn't on offer in the school per se, but my dissertation topic ended up there. So I apprenticed myself after 15 years of clinic. I apprenticed myself to a herbal master and spent two years working under somebody else, Donnie Yance, mm-hmm. um, in Oregon, in order to learn more than I had um, in school or in real life up to that point. And so, yes, most of my work is about cancer care. But even with that, there's so much that people can do for themselves. So we can talk today. I don't know where you want to take this conversation, but we can certainly talk about the poisonous herbs and the drop dose herbs and the herb drug interactions and all that tricky stuff and how to manage through chemo and all those things. But we can also just talk about healthy lifestyles and general good practices and taking adaptogens and keeping your immune system strong and dealing with stress and all those things that we talk about. You know, I I subscribe to a number of medical journals. And this morning I got a post through from the Journal of the American Medical Association. They were all excited about, I can't remember now if it was five things or seven things you can do to hold off Alzheimer's. And I'm reading them and they're like, don't eat too much sugar get plenty of sleep, get exercise, lose weight, quit smoking. I'm like, guys, like, why are you talking about Alzheimer's? Why not just talk about like healthy living? You know, Mm. the things that we talk about for all the health maintenance and all the preventative, it's as applicable in cancer as it is in all the other degenerative conditions. So right from the get-go, we we as patients, as individuals, can do a huge amount. And if you get the unfortunate diagnosis, which, of course, as you know, between... 50 to 60 percent of us are going to get Mm -hmm. a cancer diagnosis more than half of us probably will and if it's not us it's our loved ones you know once that shows up you know in real time then you might need to change your plan and step your plans up but there's still a lot that the patient themselves and their families can be doing before you have to start talking about practitioner only or really complicated stuff it doesn't have to be a lot of it doesn't have to be rocket science Oh, I like how you make it so accessible. You know, there's a there's a sort of progression you can make in your journey mm-hmm. to accessing herbs from a day to day look after yourself level. But even if you get a diagnosis with something, you can enter at a certain level. Um, yeah. So do you have like a model you work to, whether it's I mean, let's keep it focused on oncology. But generally, do you have a little pattern or you know, how do you work, Chantal? <laughs> you know, it's such an interesting question. Because we're taught all this kind of theory in college and then we get out into practice and we do whatever we're doing and we often don't have time to stop and think, well, how am I doing this? And what does it mean that I'm doing it this way? And what are the implications of that? And what would happen if I did it different? And So I personally have found that teaching has been very helpful for me to sort of crystallize my process, to be able to explain to somebody else what you're doing So it isn't just reflex or instinct, which might be very effective, but it's really hard to teach instinct. It's really hard to teach a reflex. So I've tried to bring it down into some more concrete systems, if you like, or processes for for managing care. 
And I have put some of this into my book in a very, very simplified form. In clinic, of course, there's more moving parts and more complications than you choose to write about because it just makes it so muddy. But what I've put into my new cancer book is a very, very simple model, which I... I could give credit to Jill Stansbury, actually, although Jill really just articulated something that we all already knew and did. But Jill has this lovely model, and um, we're calling it the, she and I have discussed this, we're calling it the pyramid prescribing principle. So foundation is all your preventative care, all your adaptogens, immune tonics, Mm -hmm. nutritives, and the gentle herbs that just help your body do what it should do properly. And so that's kind of the base of the pyramid. Then one side of the pyramid is all your supportive, adjunctive herbs, the things that treat the comorbidities or mitigate some of the risks or treat some of the side effects and symptoms. And then on the third leg of the pyramid is the activators or the effector herbs that really target the pathological process. So in Kerry Bone's model, where you have your physiological enhancement strategies and your pathological correction strategies, David Hoffman would call those the normalizers and the effectors. The normalizers on the physiological enhancement, making your body do its job better, pathological correctors working on forcing the issue, really making the body do something different, hopefully Mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. And so Jill's just sort of expanded that a little bit to a, to articulate a model that I think we many of us were working in already, found, build the foundation so that you have resilience, treat what's right in front of you, the symptoms, the side effects, the current condition, and then um, something to address the pathology itself, the activators or the effectors. So it's not rocket science in that sense, but figuring out what hope to put in is tricky. And then if you want to go the next level, the model would go on up to the triune model, which David Winston teaches a lot. And David has evolved a very sophisticated and rather complex model based on the work of a herbalist in the U.S. who's passed away now called William Lassassier. And William was, you know, for lack of better words, I could call him a sort of channeler. I mean, he, 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 I don't know where he got his knowledge from, but he was very brilliant, very, very gifted. And he, he tragically died way too early. But his work has been carried on a lot by David Winston in the model of prescribing which is a pyramid. It's a pyramid prescribing principle, but it's layers with pyramids within the pyramids. Mm -hmm. But my model is really that. I look at build a foundation, try to help the body to do what it needs to do. So if you have constipation, deal with constipation. If you have diarrhea, deal with diarrhea. But not just treat the symptoms, but trying to reestablish normalcy, Mm -hmm. trying to build that foundation of strength and resilience, dealing with the immediate whatever's up in front of you, and then dealing with the pathology itself, which can be quite complicated, of course, in cancer because there's often insufficient information. So a lot of my time is spent on teasing out what's really going on to try to customize a treatment plan. So we spend a lot of time chasing down various sorts of testing, both blood work and scans and genetic testing and trying to track down really the behavior of this cancer in this person in this moment because it changes and just because you've got 10 people with breast cancer 
they're not going to get 10 identical treatments. I mean, not in complementary medicine. They might in conventional mainstream. But we're going to try and look at, you know, the whole person in the context of their lifestyle and their you know, position in the world. Like, you know, it's fine to set up all these fancy programs, but can they afford it? <laughs> Do they actually have access to a kitchen to make the soups? Can they sit and put their feet in a basin of, you know, a foot bath for an hour while the kids are screaming around them? You know, what's realistic? <laughs> So I spend a lot of time negotiating with my clients, saying, like, this is what I'd love to see happen. Now, this is your reality. How do we mesh those things? So there's a lot of to and fro, and I never get all the information I want, but I get what I can to try and customize a plan for somebody and change it over time. Oh, really interesting to hear these, you know, your sort of absorption of these different models and uh, approach to health, but... What I hear, you know, coming through loud and clear is how you put the person at the middle of everything. There might be a named disease, that there might be some social environmental issues, but, you know, the, that person is put right at the middle. And I don't know, one of the things that I've found fascinating, the more I've learnt about herbs, is the, this sort of biological plausibility, in a way, as you, as you look at how there may be pathways in the body that can be initiated, regulated, uh, modulated by, by the herbs. And that just seems like maybe this is you know, more focused in cancer, but maybe in America as well, where there is this great access to bloods and, and analyses. It feels like there is that uh, uh, tendency. You know, what, what have you found through looking at that biological plausibility? You know, what herbs have you really found meet your need of the hour when you find someone that's got some big inflammatory markers or you found some hormonal tendency how, how do you join those this sort of the, the tradition and the science in a way yeah that's a great question um i'm not sure that there's a really good fit at all uh, all the time but very often what happens is um, like when I run a test, I'm trying not to go on a fishing expedition. I don't just randomly run a bunch of tests to see what might show up. I'm trying to order tests that, as you call it, have plausibility. Like this, if we get this piece of information back, it could reasonably direct the treatment planning. So my testing isn't just scattergun. I try to be um, discerning about what, because, my goodness, it's expensive. Mm. Um, and over here, of course, most of it's out of pocket. And in the UK, I have plenty of clients in the UK as well, and um, they can get lots of testing if they're willing to pay for it. Yeah. So um, very often what's happening is I am gathering clues about details that I can't see or measure in other ways that might inform the treatment. But honestly, some of it is in order to validate to the patient and their other practitioners what it is I'm trying to do. So I'm pretty much sure I'm going to use, you know, green tea and turmeric and, you know, some... I don't know that the herbs I choose are necessarily, like, really revolutionary herbs. I'm often using the herbs lots of other herbalists would use. I think a lot of it is the reasoning and, and the confidence... And that comes from understanding why I'm doing it. So it isn't just, oh, turmeric's good for cancer, take mm. this. No, if you have elevated C-reactive protein, if you have elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate, if you have elevated ferritin, now you need turmeric. Now you really need to 
drown yourself in turmeric. And no, I'm sorry, a couple of capsules a day doesn't do it. I'm giving people tablespoon doses and super concentrate purified isolates. I tend to use, if I use an isolate, I'll usually use like, like curcumin. I'll almost always give whole herb alongside as well. Because I don't know what I don't know, right? I don't know what I'm missing if I just give an isolate. And the studies on the synergy of constituents, I mean, Artemisia annua is such a good example. People think, oh, it's all about artemisinin and we've got this sesquiterpene lactone and it's really exciting and it does all these, you know, endoperoxide bridge in the cell. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. It doesn't work nearly as well if it doesn't have its derivatives and flavonoids with it. The flavonoids augment the efficacy. So why are you injecting artemisinin intravenously into patients? That's what's being done over here in the naturopathic world in North America, mm-hmm. big time. Not even artemisinin, they're using artesunate, mm-hmm. which is a derivative. And not using whole herb. And this kind of thing really troubles me. So, um, so the testing that I would recommend would be... Um, the intention is to target the treatment, to either rule things out, which is very useful. Maybe you don't need those certain herbs. You think you need them because it's standard in this condition, but maybe you don't need them. So ruling things out as much as ruling things in. Monitoring change is really helpful. You have a patient, a really classic example in my practice, cancer care, is patients who are blood deficient. They've had chemos and radiations which have wiped out their immune system and actually wiped out their bone marrow. So they're anemic and they're neutropenic. And so what we want to do there is start to do all the herbs that build bone marrow. So we're using all the astragalus and the mushrooms and maletia and onquai and all these herbs that build the bone marrow. And then you can see it in the bloods. You can literally now somebody could come back and say, well, that was going to go up anyways. And time would have sorted that out. But but I can tell you over 20 years of practice that I've got enough tracking now to see that there is a correlation. Is it the only thing that's making the bloods rise? No, of course, time does play in. But I have plenty of patients that haven't done those things come to me later and are still struggling. Hmm. So I use testing to guide treatment. But I would never base a treatment solely on the numbers. It's always, as you said, the patient is in the middle of the mix. And so I've heard this attributed to lots of people, but I think that it came from Hippocrates. And and I stand to be corrected if you know better. But the quote is more important to know what kind of person has a disease than to know what kind of disease a person has. Mm. So simple. So profound. So that's that's my ethos really that's how I work the patient's in the center and everything revolves around them and if they can't do this even though it's the best thing in the world they can't do it you know they're not going to do whatever they I you know you have to you have to meet them where they are and then work them towards where you think they need to get to I mean it, it you know it's so specific the the treatment it can seem Herbalism can seem very general in a way, can't it? When you when you read about it in a way that this you know, turmeric we can talk about is, treats all inflammation, etc. But um, you know, I like the fact that you're taking what might be an energetic approach as well, uh, but then using the the blood test and the analysis and the sort of phytochemical knowledge to make it really specific 
And that, mm-hmm. that feels very um, therapeutically effective, but also very empowering for you as a clinician because you've got a clear objective, uh, but mm-hmm. obviously for your client as well who can be, can be helped. And I, I really like what you said there about you know, being clear with your intention because I think there's something um, crucial in clinical practice, isn't there, in terms of coming up with a clear diagnosis and setting a, a clear plan. And, um, well, with many pathologies and diseases, that's potentially difficult because they can be so uh, uh, complex. Um, and so it's great to hear this knowledge that you're developing through um, insight into analysis that you can then... Uh, make your formulas so specific and work with the individual as is appropriate to them because it can be expensive taking lots of different supplements or it can be very time consuming making lots of juices or soups or or whatever you have to do. Yeah, yeah, being healthy is a job and um, by no means everybody is willing to take that job on. Some people just want to be the passive recipient and take their pills and potions and on their merry way, they don't do that well in my practice (laughs) and probably not that well in most herbal practices. Most of us herbalists require our patients to have a certain amount of buy-in because the medicines don't taste great or you have to make up teas or you have to put lotions on or something. Or in my practice, they have to go outside and talk to plants and walk barefoot on the grass. And, you know, because I'm also a horticulture therapist, I tend to do a lot of Uh, people plant engagement practices. So I try to get my patients, like every single patient always has a tea, loose herbs, not tea bags, because I want them to at least know that plants are in their mix. But I'll often prescribe them to be outdoors, to go outside, Mm. to walk barefoot, to walk in the woods, to whatever, even if they're bed bound, to sit by a window. so, So I think that there's really, you know, so many avenues to come into herbal medicine it really like I said at the beginning it really is the medicine of the people because everybody can do something and if budget or capacities are limited then the practitioner's job is to find ways around that to make that as easy for the patient as possible Mm -hmm. whatever that might look like so um, you know, for example, I um, I might make up a whole lot of the herbal decoctions and freeze them so that the patient can take those home in ice cube trays and, you know, thaw out a couple of those each meal to add to the dish that they're cooking, whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's ways that a practitioner can make medicines more convenient for patients. But we also need to remember that we want people to have a buy-in. We want people to engage in the process and not just be passive recipients. And so actually getting them to make the tea or, you know, brew up the herbs or whatever, there's some value in that. There's a herbalist, a medical doctor herbalist, I'm sure you have heard of over here called Tiarona Lodog. Mm -hmm. And Tiarona was a, um, I think I'm correct in saying, a third-generation medicine woman in her, from her indigenous heritage, and she's also um, a, a midwife, a herbalist, and now a medical doctor. And um, Tirona taught a class years ago where she talked about how, as herbalists, we're very good at taking things away from people. Don't eat this, don't drink that, coffee is bad, and you know, making people feel sort of negative or guilty about a lot of things in their diet or practices. So we take them away, don't drink alcohol, don't drink coffee, whatever, and then, and then what? 
And Tirona's point was about how we have lost ritual. And that for many people, that tea or that coffee is the ritual. I know for myself, I like to buy whole beans and grind them myself fresh every morning. That part of that ritual is just smelling the coffee. I'm enjoying it before I've even drunk it. And so Tirona's comment was that there's some value in making your herbal um, formulas a little bit of effort to give a ritual back. So make a tea that requires that they decoct it and then use that decoction to make the infusion and, you know, so that they actually have to engage in that process and that that brings medicine value to it. And don't forget about the placebo effect. About one third of improvements come through placebo. So the more the patient's engaged in it, the more likely that is to happen. And although we could be dismissive of placebo effect, oh, it's just placebo. It's like, hang on a minute. If 30% of people get better with no drugs or other treatments, whoa, can we like, can we yeah. monetize that? You know. I mean, it sort of plays into this idea of you know, how do you help activate someone's wellness, you know, their whole system. And we can talk about it in terms of, you know, immunity or microbiomes or all these things. But this idea, which is maybe a more traditional idea, isn't it? A more holistic approach of the energetic approach. And um, there are tangible approaches to doing that. And there are specific things of boosting chi, raising blood, nourishing mm -hmm. yin, ojas, ching, all of those things. Um, and it's not written about making one's own decoctions contributes to it, but I think the things you're saying about the engagement and the empowerment and the touching and the feeling mm -hmm. and awakening your senses play a, it has played a crucial part in uh, a sense of joy in life, in a way, that you can experience mm -hmm. these things, but also a sense of a semblance of control in a... In a, in a yeah, in I think a, that's really important. It. And perhaps especially with cancer, you do really feel a sense of, you know, loss of power, mm. disempowering, you, you know, and you become um, a number in the machine. Um, you become another person on that conveyor belt through the medical system. And, uh, and it's a very, very disempowering process for most mm -hmm. patients. And um, at least... Here, there's in North America generally, there's a little bit more um, willingness to go outside of the system and just pay for what you need and get on with it, assuming you can. Um, in the UK, my experience of practicing there, and I do practice in the UK as well as the US and Canada now, is that the patients, maybe because the NHS has been around longer, they've tended to be a little bit less self-reliant, a little bit more like, well, the doctor will fix it and not necessarily stepping up as much. And, of course, I'm a huge proponent of socialised healthcare for all, and Canada does have a semblance of that as well. But um, it, does, it does sometimes allow people not to feel a sense of responsibility for their own wellness. And, um, and I'm not sure that that's great. So what happens with the cancer diagnosis is that they quickly learn that not only has their body reached a crisis, but the system is actually not going to catch them very well. And sad but true. Obviously, some people get exemplary care and have great outcomes, but the majority do not. Um, that's the, the nature of the beast. Everybody gets health care, nobody gets great care. 
not enough to go around. And as we all know, the system is so skewed that small numbers of people are making lots of money at the top and the drugs are unaffordable and, you know, all the politics of healthcare. Mm. So for all of those reasons, I think that it's really important for us as practitioners to turn it back to the patients and say, what can you do? How much can you take on in this journey that we will go through together? Because the more you can do... A, the less it'll cost you to be paying me, and B, the more I can spend time on other people, mm. right? So if I can teach my patients how to be proactive in their process, then it, it's, it works for everybody. It's better for everybody. Um, it's a little more challenging in the medical system because they're not accustomed to patients asking a lot of questions, pushing back, saying, well, actually, I don't want that drug until you've done this test. You know, so you're doing a lot of, of education with people and helping them... Yeah know what to what what to yeah. ask i mean well as you know the root of the word doctor and the root of the word teacher are, are the same so a doctor is really a teacher mm -hmm. or should really be a teacher and i think in herbal medicine that's a great deal of what we do actually is educating our patients to be more empowered around their own well-being mm -hmm. so once you've so you've met the person and you've decided on your sort of theoretical model as such um, I know we can't cast anything too specifically, but I'd love to look at what you might do. Some broad ideas, Janchal, with with diet, with maybe some mm -hmm. emotional, spiritual work. And then, of course, it'd be great to talk about some of your favourite herbs and, and how you might use yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I would say that my practice is probably a little bit different than most herbalists. And I'm not sure that I'm necessarily the best model to follow, because although I've been doing it a very long time, I'm not sure I'm very efficient at what I do. So I tend to spend an awful lot of time with the patient. And so my first appointment is 90 minutes, but I've previewed the file. So everybody is required to submit not just their intake form, but all their medical history, blood work, etc. And then we graph all of the blood work so that I can see it tracked across time. I may not go back years and years, but I'll graph at least the last year's worth of blood work or from the beginning of their current concerns so I can see it tracked over time and see the ebbs and flows and the highs and lows, because I'm not only looking for what's out of range, I'm looking for proportions and ratios within the blood work. And I'm also looking for high or low end. What are you trending towards? Not, not absolute out of range, but what's the pattern? So all of that happens before they come in. We do a 90 minute intake and then they leave without anything in hand. So I don't prescribe on the spot. Actually, most of my work is on um, distance now anyways. I don't have that many people coming in the office anymore. I'm happy to, but <clears throat> most of my work is people far, far away. I'm almost only referrals from other practitioners now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I do my interview and then they leave and then I spend a good bit more time, sometimes a couple of hours more on a file, um, sometimes more than that, depending on the case. And what I do is I go away and I research their condition. So sometimes it's something I've worked with many times before. Colorectal cancer, stage one, no lymph node involvement. I can probably turn that one around fairly quickly. But when I get complicated cases who've had numerous treatments, maybe they've got more than one cancer, maybe they've had some unusual testing or they haven't had any testing or they've got an experimental drug or all these different permutations... I research. I, I spend hours in databases looking up 
what it all means. And specifically, I'm often looking, especially today with the immunotherapies, the new drugs, they target those drugs according to genetic factors. And if you get that report and you can see what genetic factors are messy, then there are herbs that might work in those pathways. So now we're getting into what is really not very holistic herbal medicine at all, because we're getting down into the studies. And this is where I got so tangled up writing my book, because there are thousands, tens of thousands of studies of curcumin (laughs) in cell lines in labs. Mm. And it's proven to do all of these things. How do we now extrapolate from there to human practice? And how, what's the dose? And under what circumstances are you taking it? Do you need the coconut fat? Do you need the black pepper? You know, do you need the bromelain? That's not how animals would have taken it. Well, actually, animals probably didn't eat turmeric rhizomes in nature, you know. So, so none of that's really natural medicine. And the, so it's really, really complicated to take this incredibly exciting cutting edge research that's out there in the world and turn it around into a clinical practice. And so what I look for is a preponderance of evidence. I am not here to say curcumin does anything, but I do think it's valuable to say the studies have demonstrated that under these circumstances, curcumin can be expected to achieve these outcomes. Now, when we take the whole herb, Let's watch really carefully and see what outcomes we get. And over time, we'll start to accumulate the numbers of bodies to give us the evidence because we're only doing N of one. Because we do customized work, it's only ever N of one. There's not a very reliable statistical analysis there. So you have to do it again and again and get comparable outcomes in order to be able to have some solid ground to stand on. So in my practice, what I'm doing is I'll take, uh, you know, I'm thinking right now, for example, you know, I've got an ovarian cancer patient coming in tomorrow. She's actually in the UK. So obviously it's on Zoom. She's a young woman, 30s, um, catastrophic diagnosis, been going on for years, multiple drugs, multiple failed attempts to help her from conventional medicine. So now what we're looking at is she's, quote unquote, failed all of the conventional treatments. And now her doctor's like, well, let's look a bit further because we really don't have the answers. So now we're trying to look at what other tests could be done to guide that process, because she's already proven not to be a good candidate for a lot of drugs, which might indicate that certain herbs are not going to work either depending on what pathways. And so I'm always trying to get down. I mean, it's a fool's game in a way, because we know that the body has more mystery than than we'll ever know about. So we're always chasing ephemera. But that's what we do, because that's the best we can do at the moment. So I try and hold the whole person in my mind and their whole story. You know, this particular patient isn't just an ovarian cancer. She's a woman with a life, not much of a life right now, but she wants more. So and there's other conditions going on. You know, you you don't get that sick without some other consequences. So now she's got, you know, chemo side effects that we have to deal with. The chemo didn't work, but the side effects are still running Mm. through her system. So that so the work is really, really tricky in that regard. I try and take the whole case to pieces 
and look at prioritizing and I'll often write up, they get a five to 10 page written report plus the prescriptions, plus all the handouts of diet and supplements and what have you, just the written report is, I go through from the beginning of the story to the end. You told me this is your diagnosis. Well, these are the tests that you've had that make me query that diagnosis. Or these are the tests you haven't had done yet that we need to know more about your diagnosis. And then you tell me that you have also, you know, that you've got this other condition and these other problems and these are the things we can do. So I try and look at the whole story and pick off herbs that would address more than one of the conditions. That's always the key. I'm looking to give the least herbs possible for the shortest time possible. So, you know, I was a student of Heinz Elstra and Hein used to say that the best herbalists gave the least herbs. Well, that, so, that disqualifies quite a lot of... <laughs> it does, doesn't it? When I, 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 this was quite funny for me. I trained in the UK in the 80s, early 80s, and started to practice in 1987. And um, Hein was still alive, of course, at the time. And he was forever um, talking about simplify, simplify, less herbs, like no more than five herbs in a formula, less is better. And, and then I came to North America and then I apprenticed in Donnie Yance's clinic. And Donnie is a polypharmacist. I mean, he might have 15 herbs in a formula and one of those is a blend. I mean, that's, and, Chinese, I mean, that's what Chinese traditional medicine does, big blends, doesn't it? Yeah. In, in more synergistic And it works. Yeah. And I think the point is it all works. I think a lot of it is really interesting how it isn't necessarily the, the amount of chemistry. It's almost like, I don't know if this is allowed, but can I say this? It's like the energetics of the chemistry. It's mm. almost like there's something beyond the actual molecular structure. There isn't enough of that to do what we see happening, and yet we see it happening. So there's something more in many cases than we could count or measure or see um, in the in the. I mean, I'm 100% with you, Chantelle. You know, initiating a vital force or um, uh, in a yeah. in a healing spirit, I think you know, hearing the care and attention and detail, emotional, mental, scientific that you're applying, you know, that, that, that's going to help someone feel very uh, supported and nurtured and listened to and cared for, but not just on an emotional level, on a very practical, medical, yeah. uh, therapeutic yeah. level. So, And it is about vital force. You're absolutely right, because these people are debilitated and the treatments that they're going through are just, I mean, it just knocks them out. And so building up that vital force, it's very slow and tedious and it requires a lot of coaching because I'm telling them I, I prescribe naps. You know, I literally I write it out because otherwise, oh, I can't do that. My husband would be upset if I lay down in the day. I'm like, for God's sake, you know, naps are good. So, yeah, building vital force. And that's that, you know, in the pyramid prescribing principle, that's the foundation. Like you can't build the rest. If your foundation isn't strong, then the legs of your pyramid are going to be wobbly. So have you got some favourite uh, foundational, uh, let's indulge ourselves for a minute, some favourite, um, you know, foundational herbs? Well, nothing very earth shattering, I think. I mean, you know, I come back around, you know, astragalus is probably one of my really big ones. The mushrooms, you know, where I live, I'm in the country, so I can pick my own reishi and my own turkey tails out here. We have a lot of edible mushrooms in the woods too, but but for, you know, patients, I can show them reishi and turkey tail mm. and they could pick themselves. It's really simple. Mm -hmm. um, the herbs that I use the most 
like in terms of how frequently I'm reordering supplies, I use an immense amount of turmeric, um, but I use a surprising amount of go-to cola. I think now go-to cola is probably my number one most frequently prescribed and most volume prescribed herb because I see... I see go-to cola. Yes, it's a great connective tissue tonic. Of course, it's for repairing and restoring connective tissue. Well, in cancer, you know, you've had surgery. You need to repair connective tissue. Cancer metastasis is growing through connective tissue. You can resist metastasis by strengthening and knitting up the connective tissue. Um, all the brain fog and the disordered thinking, chemo brain, go-to cola is fantastic for that. And it has its own fairly significant anti-cancer activities. So go-to cola is probably the number one, closely followed by turmeric. And then again, the astragalus and mushrooms as part of that foundation that's kind of appropriate for everybody under pretty much any circumstance. And if they tend to be more cold constitution, you're going to put more warming herbs with it. And if they're hot constitution, you put some cooling herbs in there. But the principle is still the same. So I'm I'm not trained in energetic systems in a conventional sense, as in I've dabbled, you know, I lived in India for several years. So I've certainly studied Ayurveda, but not in a way that I could call myself an Ayurvedic practitioner. I've, I think I've done TCM 101 about five <laughs> times, still struggling to get my head around TCM. And then, of course, studying with Hein, we studied the humoral system. So in my practice, I'm working mostly in a sort of phlegmatic, choleric, melancholic, sanguine worldview. Um, so I try and weave that through the formulating. But I will have to say in the cancer practice that the energetics have tended to take a back seat. I focused on biochemistry and sort of molecular pathways in my studies an awful lot more than energetics. In hindsight, maybe it would have been great to have gone into a more energetic model 20 years ago, but I ended up in science. And so I try and weave the two together in the formulating, and often I'll do that through the food aspect. So the herbs do what the herbs do on their biochemistry, but I can tilt the balance with warming foods or cooling foods, drying foods, moistening foods. Um, I'll tend to do that sometimes more than with the herbs, just because sometimes I just I want that chemistry, and that's what I want. Mm. Interesting. You're just mm -hmm. making me think that, um, you know... So many of the herbs for skin, traditionally in, um, in uh, herbalism, have got that application in healing the interior skin, if you like, and our sort of epithelial mm -hmm. cellular interface. And um, that ability of plants, and I think Gotokola is a great example of initiating that intelligence within people, you know, because it's got that um, function in the nervous system. It seems to have that ability and is used in Ayurveda to to initiate that inner inner awareness. And that approach to yeah, healing wounds and alleviating suffering. So many of these plants are also nervines, aren't they, in a way, and that they, mm -hmm. they help us, you know, metabolize and digest the difficulty. So what are some of your what are some of your other favorites? I mean you know, andrographis is a... I don't know if you use that a lot, but I... I, I do I, use I andrographis, that. actually, yes. Um, mm -hmm. Not that we're just going to... Andrographis is a great though. herb. Um, in the cancer field, I mostly use andrographis for its sort of tissue specificity around liver. Mm -hmm. So I'll tend to use it if there is liver cancer or liver metastases 
or a viral load. And a huge number of cancers have a viral load, and a lot of people don't realize that. You know, we know about cervical cancer and human papillomavirus, but um, squamous cell carcinomas of the throat and mouth almost always have HPV, mm -hmm. Epstein-Barr, um, and or herpes. And, um, and melanoma very often exhibits um, Epstein-Barr um, aspects. And so, so testing the tumor for viral load might indicate that things like andrographis and chaparral have a very particular role to play. In fact, quite a number of the cytotoxic anti-cancer herbs have um, an antimicrobial quality. Artemisia annua, for example, mm. has an antimicrobial quality. Tahibo, um, you know, um, podophyllum, quite a lot of them have, have aspects of fairly strong activity in the immune system. And that may or may not be why we're choosing them for cancer. Mm. Right? There's other reasons. It isn't just like crank up your immune system and you'll fix your cancer. There's a lot more specificity than that. But they often have antiviral components or antiparasitic components as well. So one of the things I did in this book that I've just written was actually this. It's in two parts. And the second part is for practitioners. So I've actually written a whole chapter of Materia Medica of all the cytotoxic herbs that are really hard to get information on, like Pacific U hmm. and Podophyllum hmm. and Asamina Triloba. Like, where do you find the dosing for these. And um, so I actually wrote a lot of that and it was very, very difficult to get the information. Mm. And I had to just make jumps sometimes from scientific analytical research to what we think might work in practice. Um, but every single thing in the book is something I've done. I didn't, I, that was my baseline. I'm like, if I'm going to write such challenging books, so it's going to probably make a few waves out there. Um, I'm only going to write about things I've actually seen and done in clinic. Mm. Lots of stuff's not in there that I would have loved to have put in that could be good for patients. But if I haven't done it, I'm not going to write about it. Well, it's always good to base it in direct experience, isn't it? And uh, yes, you've learned exactly. that through your studies and through studying with Donnie and then the, the clinical application. I mean, we've covered mm -hmm. some of the adaptogens and we were just sort of veering into the sort of bitter anti-inflammatory viral load, viral load territory. How about some plants you know that maybe taste good and they're easy to include but super functional i don't know whether it's uh, tulsi holy basil or saffron or oregano i don't know do you use some that people can include in their diet as such as well so the question there is do you think oregano is really that great of a taste as a medicine <laughs> <laughs> no it's absolutely uh, you know not really oregano yeah. tincture or the oil i mean absolutely so yeah. wrong i mean it's just uh, um or oregano, as we'd right. say over here. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there are quite a few herbs that I use. We, you know, they're the corrigens. The corrigens are those herbs that make the medicine go down better, make mm. everything taste nicer. I think that's a French word to improve the flavour. And so, um, yes, holy basil. I do use a fair bit of holy basil. Um, I grow it, so I mostly am using it in tea. I do use tincture as well, but I like it in tea. But it's so aromatic and particular that not everybody likes it. Mm. I use a lot of rose. I find rose petals because I'm using rose very much energetically there for heartache and heartbreak and grief and sadness. These people are grieving their own demise and the, let's call it, anticipatory grief of their loved ones. So when you know you're going, part of the 
challenge is knowing how hard it's going to be for the ones you leave behind. And here in Canada, we have medical assistance in dying. You can choose your day and time. And this has come up in clinic quite a bit, like I'm ready, but my wife isn't. I'm ready, but my kids don't want me to go. And so I use rose a lot and it tastes great. But the herb I use a lot that I would call a corrigen that's also profoundly anti-cancer is lemon, uh, lemon verbena. Mm. And I use lemon verbena because I can grow it. I have a big greenhouse and I grow it, grows incredibly well here. It tastes delicious. I get three crops a year out of my greenhouse. It's embarrassing. I mean, in the end, I just toss it at the end of the season. I can't. I ask my friends to come and pick it and they can't take enough. Um, it tastes great. It's full of limonene, which has got profound monoterpene hydrocarbon, profound anti-cancer properties. Also happens to be really good for indigestion. So patients who are struggling with upper GI symptoms because of their chemo and their vomiting and what have you, it settles the stomach. It's carminative. It's um, antimicrobial. And it's got loads and loads of anti-cancer properties. So probably lemon verbena is one of the top ones. And I, it was actually an interesting little thread going on Facebook this week about lemon verbena. Sorry, I can't remember who started the thread now. But somebody was asking about, is it just a nice flavor or is there any value to this plant? I'm like, oh, my God, that's a huge medicine in my book. Yeah. I mean, it's the other way around, isn't it? If it tastes good, it's super good for you, really, because it's got so yeah. many um, whatever volatiles or, or polyphenols, yeah. etc. in there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a lovely, lovely plant, and anyone can grow it in their home if you don't have a greenhouse. I mean, if you have it outside, you just need to bring it in for the winter in the cooler climates. But what's lovely is to pick a little sprig of it and um, and just hang it off the rear view mirror of your car. And so you just rub the leaf every time you get in. Yeah. Or what we do here, because I'm running a small farm, we harvest a lot of herbs. And any of the aromatics, whether it's the mints, the lemon verbena, the rosemary, whatever, when we've stripped the leaves for drying, we take all the twigs and we put them either in the footwell of the car so that your feet are on it when you're in the car. Or just, you know, I have... Um, we have a, a barn with just a concrete floor. We just throw them down on the floor, Ooh. basically. Oh, and strewing walk on method. Them. <laughs> strewing a method. strewing herb method. Yeah. And we walk on them for a few days until we get bored and sweep them up and out they go. And it keeps flies down, mm. keeps bugs away. Of course, on a farm, there's always rodents and it helps with that. And it smells great. And the whole nervous aspect of the facing such a challenging treatment protocol or pain and separation, etc. I think all of those nerves, you know, passion flower chamomile yes. melissa they all have yes. got uh, ability to treat the symptoms should we say and just what you're seeing day to day but also they've got various compounds that in specific cancer yeah. needs can be very appropriate and yeah and then you get something like saint john's wood which people are so afraid of because it's going to um you know inhibit certain pathways in the liver but if you know what you're doing with that and you know where your drugs are going you might find you could use less drugs because they stay around in the body longer gosh mm. what a radical notion mm. you know those are the things that clinicians do we mess around with stuff like that saying well if we're going to increase this pathway can we use that to our advantage or do we need a complementary herb to downregulate it again? So, you know, if you're going to take your St. John's word and don't want to upregulate your cytochrome P453A4, then take some grapefruit juice with it. <laughs> so that's a bit simplistic, of course. But the principle is that if you know what your herbs are doing, well, we don't always, 
but where we do know, then you work around those pathways and work them through to try and get the most return on investment, mm -hmm. really. And will you, will you try and combine them with drugs as well? I mean, are there various, you know, if someone's on, I don't know, monoclonal antibody or uh, XYZ, uh, hormone interrupter, aromatase inhibitor or something, do you use certain herbs to uh, enhance their effect or to mitigate? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It totally depends on the drug. Um, there may be herbs that would enhance, there may be herbs that would inhibit. And I think, you know, before any of that would would be looked at, my preference would be to try and look at, is that the right drug for this person? So, you know, you might you might be offered a medication, a chemotherapy that is in an inactive form. And if you don't have the right enzymes in your body, you won't activate it. So you'll just get poisoned without benefit. Or can you actually clear it properly? Can you get rid of it out of the body properly? And so there are tests, mostly genetic tests, a few blood works, mostly genetic tests. You know, for example, is tamoxifen going to actually be useful in your body or is it just a waste of time? Is carboplatin something you can get rid of or is it going to build up and become it's toxic anyway? Is it going to be massively toxic for you because you have this genetic quirk? So before I start using herbs, I want to know what I'm dealing with, if I can, as much as I can. I mean, it's a miracle of the modern world, isn't it? There, there is this level of specificity and this ability to individualise. And let's yeah. just hope and pray that that becomes available and more accessible to everybody as, as needs arise and mm -hmm. that it can just make any form of treatment that people are seeking you know more specific to them and therefore help them recover more quickly mm. but it's a bit of a double-edged sword because you know herbal medicine grew up over millennia without all of that and it clearly worked or we wouldn't still be using herbs and so I would like to think that you don't have to have access to all the modern analytical everythings in order to use herbs and get benefit from herbs. There's lots, obviously 80% of the world's population is using mm. herbs as their primary medicine and most of them are not getting fancy technical understanding of what's going on and the herbs still work. So I think it's important to remember, and this is true in the cancer practice as well, that more information is always great. But not having information doesn't mean that you can't do something useful. You can always build foundation. If nothing else, you can build foundation. You can almost always do some symptom management, some comorbidity approach, some supportive treatments. Even if you don't have enough information to get into the activators or the effectors. So again, in our pyramid, you can always work on the base. You can always work on the sort of synergist and supportive aspect the targeted treatments, you may feel more um, uh, restricted there in terms of not having enough information or not having enough confidence mm. to jump on in. But that doesn't mean you're not helping a patient. And so very often I do a lot of mentoring for practitioners who are needing a sounding board or a second opinion on a case. And this is one of the things I'll often say to them is just because you don't have all the information you need shouldn't stop you. It doesn't mean you have nothing to offer. It means you have some limitations, but you can still make a huge difference in that person's well-being and their ability to tolerate the other treatments that they're receiving and so on. So I think there's always a place, even if it's just as simple as a diet change or drinking some green tea, there's always something that herbs can be you know, offering. 
And the more information you gather over time or the more information that technology allows, then yes, we can customize and, and, and specify more and more. But even without that, there's a ton that we can do. And so I really, you know, for practitioners, I would say it, you're ready. You're ready to jump into this um, because there's always something you can offer. If you put the patient at the center and you treat the patient, not the disease, you'll always have something to offer them that will be helpful. Oh, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Put the person at the center and the wisdom and the knowledge that has been developed over many, many centuries and millennia has, uh, is, mm -hmm. is there to benefit everyone. So um, thank you, Chantel, so much for sharing your wisdom and experience with everybody. I think, you know, what you just said empowers everybody throughout the whole the whole uh, network of healing. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much. And, you know, really doesn't sound like you need good luck, but really good luck with all of your projects. <laughs> we all need good luck, Sebastian. We all need good luck. So luck. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure to chat with you. You've been listening to The Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That would really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. We'll learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining.